Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath here at Keller & Heckman in Washington, D.C., and uh, we welcome all of you to the OSHA 3030 uh, webinar and podcast that covers developments in OSHA law about every 30 days, and we try and cover those developments in about 30 minutes. Uh, for those of you who are new to the program, we're very thankful. And for those of you who are returning uh, members of the OSHA 3030 community, we're especially thankful to you for your consistency and loyalty. And we're thankful to all of you for when you get this invitation to, uh, to register for an OSHA 3030. We're thankful to you for forwarding that invitation on to three other people who are either in-house counsel or safety and health professionals responsible for uh, administering compliance with safety and health laws in your various organizations. I'm also thankful that I'm joined today by my colleague, Javane Nakumaram. Javane, thank you for being here today. Uh, we're, we've got a great topic. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Manish. Absolutely. And uh, as many of you know, the entire library, we've been doing the OSHA 3030 for uh, about five years. I've lost track now, and we do it every month. And so the entire library of prior OSHA's 3030 can be found on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA three zero. And so if you go onto our website and find that page, there are a number of different topics, 40 to 50 prior topics that we've covered, and they are a great primer on, on the past five years' developments in OSHA law, and as well some of the uh, issues that are evergreen challenges to uh, employers as they try and comply with safety and health law. With that said, I said we had a great topic. The topic today is a recent decision affecting the multi-employer worksite doctrine. I think it's a fascinating decision. So what we're going to do to uh, cover this material is we're first going to give an overview of the scope of the OSH Act as it applies to both the general duty clause and uh, uh, specific standards with specific regards to who's covered and whether employers and their own employees or others are covered. Then we're going to go into a background on OSHA's pronouncement of its multi-employer worksite doctrine and its policy on issuing citations. Uh, then we're going to get into this recent uh, review commission case, which I think is, is an incredibly important one by way of uh, recent appellate court holdings on the question of the multi-employer worksite doctrine. Finally, as we always do, we will finish off with a practical discussion of takeaway items for you what employers can do in light of this development. So with that said, Javanay, this is a subject that really starts with the, the prime directive of the OSH Act itself. Right. Thank you, Manish. Uh, we're going to start by looking at employer liability and the duties owed to employees under first Section 5A of the OSH Act. So Section 5A1, as most of you know, as the general duty clause, states that each employer shall furnish uh, to each of his employees employment in a place of employment which are free of recognized hazards. So again, this is the employer's general duty of care to its own employees. On the other hand, Section 582 states that each employer shall comply with the occupational safety and health standards promulgated under this act. So as we will discuss, uh, most courts and review commission decisions cite to this particular section of the OSH Act to suggest that an employer owes a duty to protect it not only his own employees, but also employees 
uh, employed by other employers that are engaged in the common undertaking. So this is the architecture of Section 5 of the OSH Act, 5A1, commonly known as the General Duty Clause, requires employers to provide a safe and helpful workplace for their employees. But 5A2 permits OSHA to issue a citation under a specific standard, and it doesn't have that language about an employer's own employees. And then, just by way of extra knowledge, 5B is the duty imposed upon employees. So that's the structure of Section 5. And I think that that distinction in the language used, Javanay, in Section 5A1 versus 5A2 is really critical. It is the distinction where the each of his employees' language appears in the general duty clause but is omitted from 5A2, which is the section where OSHA can issue a citation under a specific standard. That's, I think, an interesting dichotomy. Absolutely. That that uh, distinction sets the stage for the somewhat checkered history and interpretations of this multi-employer worksite doctrine. So before we dive into uh, some cases, we should just answer what is the multi-employer worksite doctrine. Overall, it's a policy that states that more than one employer can be cited for a hazardous condition that violates an OSHA standard. It also lays out a two-step process to determine whether more than one employer should be cited for an OSHA violation. So the two-step process starts with evaluating what type of role the employer played. So are you a creating employer, exposing, correcting, or controlling employer? And then step two is, depending on what the role of the employer is, that dictates what obligations the employer has. And so you evaluate, has that employer met his obligations? So just by way of background, Javanet, the what we're talking about here is strictly interpretive, uh, an interpretive position by the agency. And it, it was originally announced in the field inspection reference manual of the firm and then they, uh, OSHA republished a, a clear or revised version uh, by way of a compliance directive, which is basically an internal directive from OSHA to its compliance safety and health officers or area directors uh, to give them instructions on how to issue citations. And in this case, how to issue citations at a workplace that has multiple employers co-located. And they said, look, there's four different types of employers that could get cited if the circumstances fit the creating, exposing, correcting, or controlling employer. And that, that is the background for this concept of the multi-employer worksite doctrine. That's right, Manish. So for each category of employer, there are different associated obligations with, uh, with your role basically as the employer. So a creating employer, if you're a creating employer, you're essentially, uh, you've caused the hazardous condition that was violated uh, that violated the OSHA standard. So creating employers are citable even if the only employees affected are someone else's employees at the site. Um, exposing uh, exposing employers, you, you are essentially an alleged exposing employer if you allegedly expose your employees to the hazard. So exposing employers can be liable to their own employees as well as other employees if they allegedly expose them to the hazard. Correcting employers are employers responsible for correcting a hazard. So this uh, can include responsibilities such as installing or maintaining safety equipment. So a correcting employer's duty is it, it must exercise reasonable care in preventing and discovering violations and meet its obligations for correcting a hazard. And so if the employer fails to correct a hazard, then they could be held liable. 
And then finally, the most controversial uh, issue in this case would be the controlling employer doctrine. So a controlling employer has general supervisory authority over a work site. So controlling employers have to exercise reasonable care to prevent and detect violations on the site, and this includes not only their own employees, but also uh, other employees on the site. So, Jevin, I think one of the important points here, because you did a great job of identifying the four types of employers that OSHA is keeping an eye out for when trying to figure out who to issue a citation to, is that if you take, for example, the correcting employer, uh, it is possible for OSHA to believe that a specific employer is both the creating employer and the correcting employer. In other words, this is an employer who both created the hazard and then had an opportunity to correct the hazard. But the distinctions here are that there is a theoretical possibility in OSHA's interpretation that an employer did not create an, a, a hazard and did not expose any of its own employees to a hazard, but nevertheless had a chance to correct the hazard. And that is the OSHA theory that it has advanced in its compliance directive. That's right. So let's take a look at an example of what of who a controlling a controlling employer could be. So uh, let's say a construction manager is contractually obligated to set schedules and construction sequencing, require subcontractors to meet contract specifications, negotiate with the uh, with the trades, uh, re resolve disputes between subcontractors, and direct work and make purchasing decisions. So in this case, the manager does not uh, the company does not have a specific contract right to control safety on site. However, if you look at the combination of their other contractual rights altogether, that gives the employer broad responsibility, which would include safety. So we would determine based on the multi-employer policy is that this employer would be a controlling employer, and therefore the employer would have to exercise reasonable care to prevent and detect violations on the site. So this can include conducting periodic inspections or implementing an effective system for promptly correcting hazards. So let's see how this uh, doctrine has played out, not only with the uh, review commission, but also in federal courts. In general, most jurisdictions have adopted the multi-employer worksite policy. The review commissions had a history of adopting this policy in order to hold a contractor liable for a subcontractor, uh, subcontractor's employees, with the exception of the most recent decision and Hensel Phelps, which Manish will discuss, discuss in a little bit. So most federal courts have adopted this policy. The only real outlier here is the Fifth Circuit in which Hensel Phelps uh, that decision relies on. So overall, in this case, it involved a typical scenario where an employer uh, was, uh, was sued for negligence for the injury sustained by another employer's employee while working on a site. In this case, they were working on a converted ship. However, and when you refer to this case, you're referring to the Fifth Circuit case that precedes the one we're here for today, which is a case called Avondale. That's correct. That's correct. So the Fifth Circuit decision, which is uh, Mellorine v. Avondale Shipyards, uh, that that is this case is important not only because it's an outlier compared to the other circuits, but this is the decision that Hensel Phelps cites to and relies on. So in the Fifth Circuit case, the court reasoned that the duties under Section 5A2, like we discussed earlier, must be read together with the general duty clause and that they are both limited to an employer's own employees. So the court found no evidence that uh, from the OSHAC's legislative history or from the language that it sanctioned the creation of a multi-employer doctrine. 
So um, that's a, that's where we have the issue today, where there's caused some confusion uh, as to who who would be liable in these circumstances. So that brings us forward to a review commission case that came out about two and a half months ago, and it's Secretary versus Hensel Phelps. Uh, Hensel Phelps is a general contractor in construction, and our story begins when the city of Austin, Texas, commissioned the building of its central library. Hensel Phelps won the contract as general contractor, and it proceeded immediately to bring in subcontractors for various tasks. One of the subcontractors it engaged was a firm called Haynes Eaglin Waters, and they were asked to complete uh, the construction of a foundation and screen wall uh, as part of the construction of the library. Haynes Eaglin Waters, in turn, subcontracted to a firm called CVI to handle the excavation and hauling away of uh, soil necessary to construct the foundation wall. And CVI was also going to thereafter uh, engage in uh, the backfill operations, keeping the uh, excavation drained and uh, then pouring the site concrete. So Hensel Phelps, being the overall construction management uh, general contractor, was uh, engaged in supervising this specific activity along with all the other aspects of constructing the library. And to do so, they had uh, installed superintendents and project engineers as well as a project manager or several project managers on the site. Well, it happened that the slope that was excavated for the construction of the foundation wall was uh, that was created had a slope of uh, one and a half uh, to one ratio of uh, run to rise, and at the top of the, excava uh, of the excavation, there was five feet of level ground before you would encounter the fence line. CBI came to this uh, excavation and uh, started to lay the concrete, pour the concrete for the footings for the wall. But as it was pouring the footings, it noticed that there wasn't enough room for pouring the footings, and it notified uh, its contracting party, Haynes Eaglin Waters, who in turn notified uh, Hensel Phelps. What they needed to do was get a modification to the plan and move the wall. I think it was something fairly minor, like nine inches. Uh, but this affected the slope of the excavated uh, wall of the excavation. And in addition, the site was experiencing uh, inclement weather at the time. It was raining fairly heavily. The soil was wet. And so the folks at CVI believed that this was an unsafe environment for their workers to go in and continue their work uh, and asked that additional precautions be taken before their workers enter. Strangely, an inspector for the client, which was the city of Austin, uh, came uh, on site, saw CVI employees working on something else elsewhere, and they said, no, no, you got to go back to that utility pole location, which is at the excavation site, and make sure that that's shored up because that is a different uh, and uh, distinct uh, hazard to the work site. So the CVI employees went back to the excavation site for the foundation wall, and at some point, 
somebody filed a complaint with uh, the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration. I can only speculate as to who filed that complaint. Right. Uh, so OSHA comes in and conducts an investigation, uh, and the Compliance Safety and Health Officer notes indeed that CVI's employees are there at the excavation site and the uh, trenching is not properly shored. I, I must point out that this is a excavation that was, uh, I recollect, at least five, maybe six feet deep, and the wall is maybe 40 feet long. Uh, so, so they issued a citation, and after that citation, uh, Hensel Phelps instructs uh, work to be done where CVI uh, reshores and reslopes the uh, trench, as well as uh, protects the slope with uh, netting that would keep the the soil from caving in. So, so that's the site, and and they issue citations. Uh, in specific, they issued a citation against Hensel Phelps under the theory that you, Javane, were talking about earlier, alleging that Hensel Phelps was a controlling employer in this circumstance. So that's the basic, these are the basic facts under which Hensel Phelps uh, issues a notice of contest and challenges this citation. OSHA alleges Hensel Phelps had authority to stop the construction at any time. It was notified by CVI as well as the subcontractor, Haynes, Eagle, and Waters, of the alleged violation, and it could have done something about it, and instead somehow CVI employees ended up back in the uh, excavation uh, in an unsafe circumstance. But because Hensel Phelps had the authority to either order abatement and uh, safer measures to protect the trench from cave-in, and because they could have, in the last resort, stopped the construction or uh, stopped subcontractors from entering the excavation site, uh, they they were a controlling employer. That is OSHA's allegation. OSHA, by contrast, I'm sorry, Hensel Phelps, by contrast, argues that, look, we may have been a controlling employer under the multi-employer worksite doctrine, but when you look at, uh, we're, we're in the Fifth Circuit, and when you look at the circuit split that Javane had just described, the Fifth Circuit is the one holdout, which says that the multi-employer worksite doctrine does not attach to the controlling employer if what we're talking about is a circumstance where the controlling employer's employees were not exposed to the hazard itself. Remember what we talked about at the beginning, that Section 5A1, the General Duty Clause, applies only to employers whose own employees uh, might be subject to a hazard. That is to say the General Duty, under the General Duty Clause, is to make sure that an employer's employees are free from hazards. Uh, but 5A2, which applies to instances where OSHA issues a citation under a specific standard, doesn't have that provision. The Fifth Circuit, however, said that 5A1 and 5A2, really they should be read in concert. And so what we're talking about is uh, instances where the, the employer has its own employees exposed to a hazard. If they don't, then Section 5 does not attach, and OSHA ought not issue a citation. This is Hensel Phelps' argument, and they say, look, none of our employees were exposed to any hazard in that excavation site, and so we shouldn't uh, be issued a citation. The Review Commission says, look, under all of the facts that everyone agrees on, there's no question that if you apply the multi-employer worksite doctrine, Hensel Phelps is indeed a controlling employer. They meet all of the qualifications under OSHA's compliance directive for a controlling employer, and therefore, under that paradigm, would be subject to citations. However, 
we have to take Fifth Circuit cases under Fifth Circuit law, and we have to take other cases brought by OSHA applying the laws of those circuits. And applying the law of the Fifth Circuit, we acknowledge that the Fifth Circuit rejects the idea that the multi-employer worksite doctrine would attach to an employer who doesn't have its own employees exposed to a hazard. That means that for the two definitions or the two elements that OSHA has to establish to assert a multi-employer worksite doctrine citation, that is to say that the employer is one of the four types of multi-employer employers and that, they, that there was action that they could have taken, there's really a third element that OSHA would have to prove if they are bringing a case at a work site within the boundaries of the Fifth Circuit, and that would be that the employer has employees exposed to the hazard, that in those cases in the Fifth Circuit, OSHA has to meet really three elements uh, in order to make its case. And I think that's the upshot of what uh, the Review Commission had to acknowledge uh, in, in the Hensel Phelps case and accordingly uh, ordered that those citations be withdrawn. So that was a victory for Hensel Phelps, and I think that's an incredibly important, incredibly important development in OSHA decisional law. Now we have essentially a bifurcated paradigm where the employer uh, enjoys some additional defense depending on their jurisdiction if their own employees were not exposed to a particular hazard, even if, arguably, the employer was a controlling employer or a creating employer. Uh, but I think this, at the very minimum, this needs to be read at least within the confines of controlling employer uh, case law. Uh, maybe not more than that. I think that remains to be seen in other cases. But if the, if the best allegation that OSHA can bring is that the employer is a controlling employer but didn't create or expose uh, employees to a hazard, nevertheless, uh, if the employer's own employees were not exposed to a hazard, uh, they may not be cited in that jurisdiction. So what do we do as employers? What takeaway items can we take from the Hensel Phelps case? Well, Javani, I think the first thing we can say is uh, it's important when engaging subcontractors to mind carefully the terms of the contract and determine how the duty for compliance with safety and health requirements is allocated amongst the various employers. Uh, for one thing, that specific duty for, uh, monitor, for, for monitoring and complying and enforcing safety rules should, to the best of the party's abilities, be spelled out contractually. But I think, as you pointed out earlier, it's also important to look at all the other duties that don't directly and expressly go to who controls employees or who controls compliance with safety and health, but really who goes, what are the other ancillary terms that collectively paint a picture of control, like who has the power to stop work, who has the power to discipline employees, who has the power to uh, provide equipment, to monitor, to do testing, hazard assessments, uh, to provide personal protective equipment, uh, who has the power to, to provide training as to the specific hazards of the site or how to do a job properly, uh, and selection of heavy equipment as well as personal protective equipment. All of those kinds of things, when you see the allocation of those responsibilities in a contract, they, they will form an evidentiary basis that will either feed or stop OSHA from alleging a controlling employer allegation. The other thing I'd say that employers ought to consider in light of the Hensel Phelps case is 
even if you're looking at an organization that does have control of certain aspects of uh, how a project gets performed upon, there are other aspects of a contract that uh, we don't normally think of as directly relating to control, and they may be telling as well, maybe the provision or adoption of policies. I've seen a great many construction firms I've worked with where the general contractor has a safety and health policy, and they impose as a requirement of the contract upon the subcontractor that the subcontractor adopt those safety and health policies. Well, it may be in that in an ideal world, the better practice would be to require the subcontractor to develop their own safety and health policies that are adequate. But I think the more practical and efficient resort that a lot of employers use is just to hand the subcontractor the general contractor's safety policy and say you've got to agree to comply with these as well. Uh, also, sometimes you have organizations that only have control over the physical property. Uh, and I think it's important for those organizations to either allocate to the contractor or subcontractors safety and health-related duties or to engage themselves in uh, inspection and monitoring for safety and health practices. But at the very least, I don't know that there's anything that a property owner can do to abrogate its own duty to at least inspect its own premises for hazards and to disclose those hazards to subcontractors or to contractors and to make sure that the duty to either abate that hazard or effectively protect employees from that hazard has been properly allocated between the parties. Uh, Chavonet, we'd also said that one of the things employers can do is identify duties for a reasonable standard of care. That's right. That's right. And so, again, depending on what, what kind of employer you fall under in the policy, that dictates what obligations you owe to your employees, and uh, in particular for controlling employers, uh, the policy lays out the factors that you can consider for the reasonable standard of care. So in evaluating whether the controlling employer has actually exercised this reasonable standard of care, uh, OSHA looks at whether or not uh, the employer has conducted periodic inspections with appropriate frequency. And uh, with regard to inspections, OSHA actually uh, has more detail in terms of how frequent these inspections should be depending on the subcontractors that you work with. So, for example, if the controlling, if the if the contractor subcontracts with a company that they've never worked with before or that has a history of violations or uh, or citations, then they should perform more frequent inspections. Uh, however, if the company has a good record, then less frequent inspections would be appropriate. Uh, also, uh, part of the analysis of reasonable standard of care. Uh, that OSHA looks to is whether or not the controlling employer has implemented an effective system for promptly correcting violations uh, uh, and also uh, if they enforce the other employer's compliance with safety and health uh, and an effective uh, graduated system of enforcement with follow-up inspections. So the policy is a good guideline to determine if you've met your obligations for a reasonable standard of care. So I think the other thing that is really critical at the very beginning stages of con contracting with subcontractors is to lay out what you think are the safety and health controls that are necessary and incorporate that into the bid process or request that uh, subcontractors, as part of the bid process, outline what they intend to do 
not only to perform the work, but also how they intend to perform the work safely. Then you can evaluate which subcontractor to pick from uh, the, on the basis of how they've answered the question, how do you intend to perform the work safely, or what measures do you intend to take to perform the work safely. And I think that that selection criteria is really critical. Then, when you select a subcontractor, I think it's really important to make sure that that information they've provided you in the form of a bid gets locked down as a contractual promise so that you have contractual tools to enforce when you selected them and engage them. Uh, in addition, of course, Javanese, as you mentioned, the safety record of uh, subcontractors is going to be critical, not just when trying to achieve some greater level of OSHA law compliance, but also standing in tort, where you you don't want to be in a position of having ignored uh, a poor safety record, engaged your subcontractor anyways, and then something went wrong. Uh, when the lawsuits outside of OSHA law start getting filed, that fact will not come to your aid. Uh, and then finally, I'd say this. Uh, when you deal with contractors, I think a quality assurance program, as formalized as you can make it, will aid in making sure that y your organization uh, is as well protected as you possibly can be. Uh, and that obviously includes monitoring and enforcement of contractual terms. But one of the things I think is really critical from an employment law perspective is to make sure to train your managers that when they communicate safety and health hazards to a subcontractor that they communicate it to the management of that subcontractor and that it is the management of that subcontracting organization. It's that person's duty to convey the message to their own employees. To try and manage a subcontractor's employees is a risky business when it comes to uh, the basics of co-employment law or joint employment doctrine in employment cases, employment law cases. And so I think it's important for organizations to communicate management to management and that each management team is responsible to communicate that message down to their own employees. Uh, of course, that general principle has to be suspended when you're talking about a hazard that might create imminent danger. At that point, I think you've got to get employees out of a circumstance of imminent danger and can immediately address the situation with whatever worker is in the place of danger uh, in order to either remove them from danger or get them to stop the unsafe practice immediately. And I don't think that you stop to worry about employment uh, concepts like uh, joint employment or co-employment doctrine. So with that said, that is today's OSHA 3030 in exactly 30 minutes. Uh, we should congratulate ourselves. We don't always right. <laughs> meet that target. Uh, thank you all for participating and for, for sticking with us through the 30 minutes. Uh, if you want to catch more updates, you can catch uh, about OSHA law generally from our Keller and Heckman OSHA law group. You can catch them on Twitter, at Rathmonish. You can catch these OSHA 3030s as a podcast. This one in particular will be available in about a day or two uh, on your favorite podcast station. If you subscribe, they'll just automatically pop up on your phone, and you can catch this material while you're driving or uh, when you're away from your desk. And uh, we're also on LinkedIn, both on the Monish Rath LinkedIn webpage as well as Keller and Heckman's Workplace Safety and Health Program. Remember, we have our next OSHA 3030 on Wednesday, August 23rd at 1 p.m. You can register at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030 or slash OSHA3030. And also remember that when you get this invitation in your inbox to forward it on to three others in your office of in-house counsel or other safety and health professionals who might be interested, 
I want to thank all of you for participating in this OSHA 3030, and I want to thank Javane Nukumaram for joining me. Until next month, stay safe.